Apples.net podcast. This is episode number 85. My name is Adam. With me today we have Kevin. How are you, Kevin? Doing pretty good. Good. Today we have a great show lined up. First we'll be speaking with director Marina Devan on her new film Dark Touch, which hits select cities and video on demand this Friday. Then we'll be going over some of what we've been watching before getting into a feature review of Prisoners. And finally, we'll be going over this week's movie predictions, new on VOD and DVD and Blu-ray releases. First up, let's speak with Marina Devan on her new horror film, Dark Touch. Marina, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me. Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you for disturbing me to my core with your film in my skin because that is something that i can never thank you i can never unsee that movie thank you very much uh, appreciate <laughs> uh, i was wondering if we could just start off by maybe describing dark touch and a little bit about what it what it is and what it's about uh dark touch is about um how it is uh, a subject i wanted to talk about and it's about how um, kids that have been abused uh, can't recover and fail to connect to the uh, to the world and to others, and uh, they fail so much they they end badly. So it's about also how a little girl become uh, um, slowly conscious aware of uh, her own emotion. I believe she's not aware that she's hungry and um, hurtful and uh, hurt, wounded by the abuse. She's not completely aware of her own sensation. And the more the thing goes, the more she understands herself and her own feelings and her own anger and her own wounds. So that's just a psychological story, but in a spectacular version with telekinesis and all that things. Is it a good description for you? Mm-hmm. I think when most people see this film, I think that there will be parallels drawn between this and the film Carrie. But instead of simply being about... Oh, yeah, obviously. Instead of simply being about uh, a female that's that's ridiculed and bullied, it's it's a much more serious issue that involves child abuse um was carrie sort of an inspiration or the foundation for this film no not the foundation the foundation was my desire to speak about child abuse uh, which is a different subject than uh, carrie's subject but obviously i love carrie and uh, it was one of the influence one of the movie had mine when i wrote mine but it's not the foundation, no. And I guess that, that sort of answers my next question is is what drew you into the subject and what made you decide to approach the subject of child abuse in the way in which you did? I thought that was an interesting subject. I don't know why. I, I don't know. I was attracted to I'm attracted to wounded people and to people who have uh, um something Broken, so uh, there is no more specific reason. But then, after I choose the, the genre film to talk about it, because as I told you earlier, um, I wanted to show the process of becoming aware of one's own emotion, 
And uh, to show this process, I had to show the moment where she isn't aware of her own emotion, but that her uh, emotion ex- ex- exists anyway. That's why I used telekinesis, because it was a way for the emotions to be active and to be existent and um, real before she becomes aware of them. And uh, that's why at the beginning of the movie, she thinks she lives in the haunted house and that objects are mad and objects are killing people. And little by little, she realized that she's the one moving the object when she cries. So when she feels tense and anger. So um, I chose the genre of fantastic movie and uh, horror to express the specific uh, psychological evolution of my character. And I think that that's, that's something that's, that seems to be fairly easy to translate. I mean, especially when you're talking about something as horrific as child abuse, it seems like it would be a pretty easy transition to make that into something of a horror movie and instead of having it just show you exactly you know what's happening it's more representative of the actual like the fact that this girl develops these powers and then comes to realize that she can control it and sort of take control of her own emotions and her own body in a way i agree yeah I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the details in the plot, and I'm going to do the best I can to skirt around any kind of, like, spoilers or anything like that. But in the film, she and Eve meets two two kids that are also abused that sort of become, I guess, her her protégés or maybe, like, her minions in a way. And I was, and I yeah. was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit as to what made you decide to bring those two kids into Yeah, I need to show up because um, Neve in the movie, she fell in connecting to other people. So I needed to show how she could connect. And so I needed the examples of uh, the cases in which she could connect without being disturbed. And so I had the idea of those uh, similar uh, people the two kids that have been abused too. Uh, and um, I also had the idea of the welfare officer uh, whom she touched uh, at a certain point because the, the welfare officer understands, feels how to act and behave uh, in front of me. So um, I needed to show, to show her failure with people, I needed to show when she doesn't which is very rare, mm-hmm. but in which case I feel comfortable. So, and one of those cases is when she shares wounds. Mm, I see. And it was important to show also that Neve isn't a bad people, isn't evil. She's some. Uh, she's a loving child. Uh, she's just has, has been messed up, um, destroyed by what she has been through. But. Um, in the proper condition, she's someone with uh, tenderness and caring for others. Right, and I think that you did a good job with getting conveying that through through her actions and and how she uh, responds to everything in the film. Thank you. The the couple that take in Neve, they had a daughter who unfortunately passed away due to an illness. Uh, however, the pictures show that she has like bruises yeah. all over her body. Did 
Did Neve feel... Because she has a leukemia. Okay. That's that's actually what I... She had the leukemia. That's why she had bruises. Right. That's what I thought. And but Neve thinks that she had been abused. Neve thinks she had been kicked. Right. That, that... She has been beaten. That's what Neve thinks. That there's a misunderstanding. Yeah, that was actually my exact question. If, if Neve believed that this girl was abused and maybe that's one of the reasons that she, that yeah. she lashes out towards exactly. the couple yeah great so yeah exactly. there's a particularly powerful scene that happens later in the film and it, it involves a, a large group of children in the neighborhood and and something that neve does to them uh without giving too much away i was wondering if you could explain a little bit about her motivations for for doing what she does well, she, she understands uh, during the movie that um, kids are probably, from what she sees of, from the behavior of, the, of, of children, um, children are probably uh, some uh, future um, uh, abusers, mm. future uh, bad parents, uh, the way their dolls uh, is very violent, mm-hmm. is very imitative of a repressive uh, uh, behavior. So they slowly she she realized all, all those kids um, which are who are hostile with her and uh, not very friendly are also very violent um, with, for example, their dolls and are showing signs of the fact that they really they might become um, brutal parents and that's how she behaves with them how she be the way she behaves uh, I just have one final thing I want to talk about and that's the the actual children that you used in the film uh, specifically Missy Keating as Neve uh, did they do you think that they understood the subject matter as you were filming it no no they didn't no, not really. Oh, yeah, they understood that they were killing. Right. They understood they they understood they had been beaten, but none of them understood the sexual aspect of things. Oh, okay, because I haven't told them. <laughs> Did was Missy aware of of any of the like subtext throughout the film? Uh, nothing sexual, mm. but for the violence, she was fully aware of everything. But. Of nothing sexual. I just avoid avoid the thought. Yeah, that's probably good. But I ask because she just did such a phenomenal job. It just seemed like she really knew exactly what kind of emotions to convey. Yeah, because uh, I was I was yeah because all of that was very concrete, and she she knew basically the whole story, and she had read the the whole script, so. There was no mystery, except that I didn't underline the sexual aspect. But maybe she got that too. Yeah, I mean, she was she was great, but really the whole the whole cast of of kids were they did a great job, and and that that I think was is yeah. really important in a film like this. So I commend you for directing the kids. I know that that probably couldn't have been too easy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, Marina, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us. Thank you. I knew that when you focus on the small things like like font and the type of screws that go into a 
yeah. case. And, and, and for us font nerds, that's huge. Oh, yeah. Fonts everything. Yeah, exactly. I agree. But I'm a font nerd. So, so it was just kind of disappointing. It didn't, it didn't really do anything for me. Ashton Kutcher was fine. He wasn't great because there wasn't a second that I didn't look at him and think, this is Steve Jobs. Like, even though he looks like Steve Jobs, the whole time it was just so clear that it was Ashton Kutcher. And, but, but to his credit, he did get like the walk. Like, he, he changed how he walked, he changed how he talked. So he really did try to get into the role. And I think he did a, a fairly decent job with that. I did like a lot of the supporting cast. Like, Dermot Walrooney was really good. Josh Gad was good. Lucas Haas was, was really good in it too. But, it the music is really bad like the original score is really bad and it gets to some seriously melodramatic places and it just this didn't do it for me so i I would probably just pass on jobs sounds about right yeah uh one that i did like a lot is called blue caprice and this is currently playing on video on demand right now and in select cities. And we're actually giving away a free copy of this. So shoot us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net and give us your name and email. And we'll put you in for a free copy of this. All right. This is directed by Alexander Moores. And it's basically about the DC snipers. Yeah. But the interesting thing about it. And I have a review up on the site for this. I gave an 8 out of 10. The interesting thing about this is that it's not about what they did so much as how they got there. So mm. it's like a character study on these two on these two individuals and how it, it's like an expose in what makes someone evil, sort of. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that I saw this in the same week as Prisoners. Because they have a lot in common. They both have a lot in common. And the cinematography in this is really good. I I can see that some people might not like the cinematography. Because it uses... It's really grainy and it's all washed out. Very little color. Everything's kind of gray and blue. But I thought that it fit with the tone of the film a lot. And it's, (laughs) it's really good. I mean, really, really good. Isaiah Washington does a phenomenal job and Tim Blake Nelson's in it. He's in a supporting role. He's good. He's always good in everything he does. Leo Fitzpatrick's in it in a very small role. He plays an arms dealer and he's like almost unrecognizable. He has this like huge mountain man beard in it. Oh, Leo. Yeah. I'll always be a fan of Leo Fitzpatrick. I will too. Uh, I have to ask because I just realized that Colin Stetson does the music mm-hmm. for this film. How was the the score for this? It was really good. Okay, that's good to hear. He he has that uh, does like experimental bass saxophone playing. Yeah, it was it was very good. bizarre, bizarre okay. but awesome at the same time. Everything about this movie was really really good. I mean, the performances were probably the highlight just because. The film focuses so much on the characters and what makes them tick and what drives <laughs> them to do these horrible, horrible things. And <laughs> but at the same time, it's kind of like a father-son story, even though yeah, it's like a perverted version. Yeah, like even though they're not related, and he he essentially kidnaps this kid 
Now, how much is this based on, like, actual fact, and how much of it is conjecture? Uh, that I actually don't know, but... Hmm. That would be interesting. To, to me, I think that it's more like... After I saw it, it kind of reminded me of Compliance, in a way, where it's, like, based on these actual events, what really took place, but some of it's kind of embellished. Like, I, I think that a lot of it is kind of inferring how this how this all played out gotcha but i don't know i mean it 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 might all be 100 percent true no i mean the events that happen in the film are certainly true we know that yeah and and that's the other thing like it, it would have been so easy for this guy to make a movie that's just a procedural you know like have instead instead of the snipers being the focus focus it on the cops that are trying to find them and make yeah. it this typical thriller, or he could also make it like more of a, a exploitive, like violent thing where they show them doing all the all the different things where they killed people, shot people. But they didn't do that either. the The entire film focuses more on the psyche of each of these characters. Yeah, and um, there is there is some violence in it. They, they don't, you know, s- circumnavigate the the shooting. They do show that, but they don't focus on it at all. Hmm. Sounds so, interesting. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it. It's, it's quite good. Uh, one that I wouldn't recommend is called CBGB. What? Now, here's the thing. Uh, I, I love the story of CBGBs. I love punk music. I was obsessed with it when I was younger, and to see a movie like this, when I first heard that they were making a movie like this, uh, about the history behind CBGBs, I was, I was interested, and I was like, oh man, like that should be a movie that gets made. That's, that's a story that needs to be told, but <laughs> after I saw the trailer for, the, for this movie, I was like, oh no. Oh. Should definitely be told by someone else. Yeah. Uh, Randall Miller, yes, of Class Act, Kid and Play, and House Guest Sinbad. Yep. Are you kidding me? So this you is can... the guy handling CBGB. Yeah. So you can you can kind of you know what you're gonna get. How did this. how did how did they let this happen? I don't know. It's horrible though. Like it's it's so bad. Like the first off, they all the transitions in the film are with comic books and i think it's supposed to be like a punk zine type thing but they like they freeze frame the last shot and then turn it into like a a drawing and then pan out and then pan back into the the next panel and they add these like ridiculous comic book bubbles like sound effects and thought bubbles and like it's unbelievable when you watch it it is unbelievably horrible like, I just couldn't even believe what I was seeing. So, the big thing about CBGBs is the music. And they did have a really good soundtrack. I mean, tons of bands. They had, like, The Police, Talking Heads, Iggy Pop, Blondie, The Ramones. Tons of uh, bands on the soundtrack. But most of the people that played the the band members like Molly Ackerman played Debbie Harry and it didn't fit at all and she had this really bad accent. Um, 
the one guy from uh, Bones played Bones? Joey Ramone. Bones? Yeah, he's in, uh, I think his name's... Um... Joel David Moore? Okay, yeah. Joel David Moore. Yeah. He, he plays Joey Ramone, and he looks like him, but at the same time, you're just like, that's just some nerd. <laughs> Johnny Galecki from <laughs> Big Bang Theory's in it. Uh, <sighs> the guy, I don't know who the guy is that plays Iggy Pop, but he's not very good either. It's like they kind of got the look down, but they couldn't get the like the personality. Like the the one dude from, uh, first of all, Ron Weasley from Harry Potter plays a member of uh, the Dead Boys. And the other member of the Dead Boys is the dude from the Hangover movies. The guy that gets killed. Martha. The guy that's in it, but not in yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Justin Partha. So it's like, just the casting is so weird. And Alan Rickman is the main character. He plays the, the owner and creator of CBGBs, but... It's so bad. Yeah, this sounds awful. Avoid. Avoid. <laughs> then I saw the It's Alive series. This was for my Grindhouse Weekly. And I gotta say, like, I wasn't... I thought that I was gonna hate these movies, but they weren't that bad. Like, they were actually pretty pretty decent. They're All three of them are written and directed by Larry Cohen, who... He did he did the stuff which I loved and he also did Cue the Winged Serpent which I saw recently. So you're you're all about some Larry Cohen. Yeah, like I, I do like Larry Cohen and the I want to see the stuff. You have see to that. see you have to see the stuff because I after, see that. after you see the stuff you'll you'll be like all right, Michael Moriarty is the, I yeah, the, I'm a fan of Moriarty already. So like, he is so amazing in that movie. And actually, he's the main character in It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, which was my favorite out of all the all three It's Alive yeah, movies. I, I, was, I was surprised by that. that you're, Moriarty, you're man. Of, it's Moriarty. The, he just on the strength of his performance alone. Uh, not just that. Actually, the, the third It's Alive movie goes into more comedic territory, like... They don't take themselves as seriously in the third one. And for those of you that, that aren't familiar with the series, basically it's about a a couple that has a mutant baby that goes on a rampage and kills everything it sees. Fantastic. There's more to it than that. Like there's this, this kind of social uh, commentary at play with pharmaceutical companies that, because it's really weird. Like they hint, they hint at it in the first one. There's just this like maybe two two lines of dialogue that kind of mention that this woman was on this specific type of birth control before she got pregnant. Oh, and okay. that caused the mutation in the baby. And mm-hmm. then they and then they find out that a lot of women that were on this specific type of birth control and then went off the birth control in order to have a child. Uh, but the a, damage a, was already done. Yeah, like a lot of them ended up with these crazy mutant babies. And that's that's what they get into in the second one. Because at the end of the first one, they mention, like, there have been two more cases. Oh, shit. And then in the second one, they there's more of them. There's, like, three of them. And then in the, the third one, there's a whole bunch of them. Wow. And in the third one, 
the whole plot is that they don't know what to do with these mutant babies. Like they, they don't feel right killing them because they're still like, (laughs) they're still like kind of human, but you can't let them out because they'll just kill, they'll kill everybody. So what they do is they, they gather them up and drop them off on an Island and just leave them there. Sort of like, sort of like a new Australia. Yeah. And they, they end up, they grow up, they get bigger, and they grow up, and they end up, I don't know, killing people again. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. It's, it sounds ridiculous. It's fun. I, I do like the third one the most, though, just because of Moriarty. Ah, uh, Moriarty. Uh, then I saw Plus One. I have a review for this up on the site as well. This was kind of a surprise. I was I was interested in seeing this because it, it sounded like a unique idea, and I like I like movies that that are different. You know, movies that try to do something different and unique. And Plus One is definitely one of those movies. It's kind of like a cross between Project X and and Primer, I would say. it's Which, could, which totally makes sense. Yeah, it's about this big high school party and an asteroid lands during this party and it causes some sort of rift in like the time-space continuum or something. Mm-hmm. And as a result, doubles are made of everyone at the party. But what will happen is after a certain amount of time, the lights will go out, the doubles will disappear, the lights will come back on, and they'll be back again, but it'll be like the same, it'll be in the past. Okay. If that makes any sense at all. Slightly. So like basically you're partying, the lights go out, the lights come back on, and everything around you is 15 minutes in the past and everybody everybody there is there's a double okay okay i gotcha so it's really it's kind of a unique premise unfortunately it they don't really do anything with it like the the end of the film they don't really explain what caused it other than the fact that it was an asteroid and the how they wrap things up is not very satisfying Mm-hmm. They they do something kind of weird because because here's the the twist to it. Each time the lights go out and come back on, the doubles are closer in time to where the originals are. So the concern that these kids have is what's going to happen when the doubles are in the exact same spot as us. You know, mm-hmm. like are we just going to explode? Or like what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. So it it is a very interesting premise and it's a pretty it's a pretty brisk film like it moves it moves really fast it's a fast watch and it's like just over an hour and a half long i think so i would give it like a i think i gave it a five and a half on the site so it's pretty cool i would check it out like you you wouldn't like it like it's definitely not a movie for you all right because it is yeah i mean it is definitely a genre movie and they're like the kids are assholes and you don't really like them. The, the main character is uh, Reese Wakefield from uh, the purge he was in most recently and he's fine in this movie, but like every time I see him, I just want to punch him in the face. He has one of those punchable faces. Yeah, he does. He does. Yeah. That sucks. If you have that. Yeah. I just want a terrible affliction, but either way I had fun with it. It was, it was one of those movies that raises a lot of questions. Like, 
what would you do in this situation? And, and also not so good questions. Like how could this even happen? Like you start picking apart the plot because with any movie like this, that deals with time travel, if you think about it for too long, it starts to unravel. And (laughs) that's what happens with this one as well. But it's still pretty entertaining. And this is playing on demand right now, so you can check it out. Uh, Finally, I saw The Broken Circle Breakdown, which is directed by Felix Van Grognen. Grognen. This is actually a a Belgian film. And it's about a couple who meet and are in a bluegrass band and they have a daughter and she gets diagnosed with cancer and basically it's just an extremely depressing watch imagine sure. imagine if you will blue valentine only with a cancer kid added mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's piling it on a little bit thick there oh it it is it piles it on real thick but for the most part, I actually like the film quite a bit. The, there is this, there is something that happens at the, the end of the film that brings it down for me. They, for some reason, add in this like supernatural element to it. And I don't know why they did that. Because everything previously was like so grounded in reality. And now, is that because like, I'm reading a little bit here that like one's deeply religious and the other one's an atheist so were they sort of going for this like miracle type Mm, thing here okay i mean maybe but not not really i didn't even really get that that the one was deeply religious like i didn't i didn't really which is weird because that like that's all i'm reading is that one's an atheist and one's religious and that's where the the difficulty stems from what happened well i i don't know what's a i don't know what's a a spoiler and what's not a spoiler in this movie but something happens that certainly drives a wedge between them and as a result of this event taking place one of them gets kind of radical in his beliefs against god and and things like that so th- that's probably why they're mentioning that I gotcha. But it it has some really good music in it. It's really odd to see a Belgian movie that I mean if if they weren't speaking uh I don't even know what they speak. It's um is it it's, Flemish? Yeah, it's Flemish? Flemish. It's Flemish. That's it. If they weren't speaking Flemish throughout the movie, you would think that this is an American film because like they wear cowboy hats and they they sing in English. And the guy, the his name's Didier, the the main character. He's like obsessed with America, so he drives like a pickup truck, and he has a he lives on a farm, and it just it feels like an American film, <laughs> but it's obviously not. But it's it's decent, but I will warn you, it is extremely extremely depressing. All right, and the supernatural stuff at the end is horrible. That's that's it (laughs) just just throw that in real quick yeah that's all i got kevin what do you got i started out with a film that i'm not 100 percent sure why i even watched in the first place which is a sort of experimental documentary about johann sebastian bach 
and I'm really confounded as to why I watch this. Well, I, I'll tell you, this is this is what got me, and this is the power of a still photograph. It's just a one scene from the film where there's an upright pa- piano just seconds before it crashes into a lake. Mm. So I thought, I want to see what in what context this is happening. So, like I said, experimental documentary through... There's documentary portions, there are historical reenactment portions, there's uh, experimental set pieces, there's a very, very thin narrative throughout the film, just sort of delving into the importance of box music, and apparently he like revolutionized the idea of music through his ear for harmonies, which I didn't know, and I don't quite get, because they play a lot of his music throughout like I said, in these very experimental set pieces, like one is there's a empty railway cart and the, 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 or a subway, the subway's going, there's no one in it. And it's, you know, snaking through the tracks and everything. And then the camera slowly moves back through the cart. And there's a number of people playing cellos playing this Bach tune. And it's like 14, 15 of them as they're playing it. And the way that it's set up is it's, pretty exquisite the way that they shoot it and everything but the music is so terrible hmm. and, and it's all a matter of personal opinion but god i hate box music it just sounds terrible i like how you say they're just sitting there playing a bach tune <laughs> just playing a bach tune you know just jamming just, yeah just jamming on a subway cart uh there's a lot of great imagery in the film and i have to hand it to uh per portabella the director, it's a very interesting way to go about this makes it, uh, you know, slightly more interesting than your standard, you know, straightforward documentary about Johann Sebastian Bach. Because let's face it, a straightforward documentary about that would be excruciatingly boring. And even though this was, in a sense, it was much better than, like I said, a straightforward documentary just with talking heads and such. A lot of great uh, experimental imagery, but overall, it was, eh. Like, I would say, if you're a huge fan of Bach, definitely check it out. If you're just getting into Bach, check it out. It's interesting. Uh, if you have no interest in Bach whatsoever, don't watch it. But the, the the scene where they do drop the upright piano into the lake was great. But it was, like, three seconds long. Mm. So I wasted, like, 80 minutes just to see that because I'm a sucker for a still photograph. Where I'm like, oh, I want to see what that piano looks like crashing to the lake. And, you know, that's further evidence that I'm a fucking idiot. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I then followed it up with a Aki Kurismaki film. You would know him most recently as the director of La Havre, mm-hmm. which, was, which was fantastic. I loved that film. So I watched another one that's supposed to be, you know, considered one of his masterpieces, and that's The Match Factory Girl. Now... This came at a time where I didn't have much time to watch a film. I had about like an hour and a half. And this like fit in perfectly because it's, it's 68 minutes long. You know, nice brisk, brisk pace to it. You can bang this out in no time. So I go into it with no expectations. I just know that it's the story of a woman working at a match factory. Hence the title. And it's so crushingly boring. Hmm. And her existence is awful. And you just feel very poorly for her. Just you sympathize so much because she's trying. She tries to go out and have a good time, and 
nothing materializes and you feel so badly for her because she puts in so much effort and her parents are just fucking assholes and just everything about her life is terrible and you feel so sorry for her. And then finally she meets a guy and it, things are starting to look up. But then you quickly realize that he mistook her for a prostitute. And then nice. she's subsequent. Yeah, she subsequently get, becomes pregnant and he wants nothing to do with her and essentially just cuts her a check and says, get an abortion. So she in turns, she's just had enough. She's fed up and she devises a plan to get back at all of these people. And just the way it plays out is it's pretty nice. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed her style of revenge and the way that everything was fleshed out. But you know me. I'm a huge fan of cinematography. And with a a Curse Maki film, and especially this one, there's none to speak of whatsoever. There's just nothing. Think Haneke, but worse. (laughs) So there's nothing there in that area. And then I read it. So as soon as I'm done watching it, I just go searching for answers figure out why this is considered such a great film because this is actually like on ebert's you know uh great films list and then i find out that it's categorized as a comedy which confuses me even more because there's literally no comedy whatsoever in the film and it's not that like i understand when things are supposed to be funny and i don't get them you know Mm -hmm. i can realize that the intention was for that to be funny and i it just wasn't my brand of humor but there's nothing in here that tells me that the intention behind it was comedy whatsoever. I don't, I don't see where people are getting this. And it, I've read numerous reviews where people are like, oh, it's hilarious. It's, the gags are so funny. But I don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> and I'm really confused because no one like, explicitly says what it is that's funny. Just be, you know, people just sort of gloss over it, like, ah, it's funny, visual gags, this and that. But no one says, like, an actual, like, scene that was funny and why it was funny. There is one scene where it, I chuckled a little bit, and that was it. But everything else, I, I, don't, I don't see where they're getting it. And I really want someone to explain to me what is funny about this film. Hmm. I honestly want to know what is supposed to be funny like the girl working in the match factory, is that funny? Is like abortions funny? Or asshole parents that treat you like shit, is that supposed to be funny? I don't I don't realize what's funny about this. Hmm. I don't know. So I did, uh, you know, to make a long story short, I was very underwhelmed. I mean, it, it, I enjoyed myself while I was watching it, but like as soon as it was done and I started thinking about it, I'm like, there's nothing memorable about this film at all like i'm gonna completely forget this in like a couple weeks time which i pretty much have except for the insane confusion that i have for why it's a comedy i think that will always stay with me until someone explains it to me so if you're out there please email me and tell me what's funny besides the ridiculous hairdos and the clothing cabinetfilmpulse.net is the exactly please i implore you if you have answers share them with me <clears throat> uh, I then followed that up with uh, Mother of George, which I actually have a review of for on, on the website. Um, I was greatly interested in this because I saw Restless City before, which is another collaboration between Andrew Dusunmu and Bradford Young, the cinematographer who I've talked about numerous times and I think is one of the best cinematographers working today. 
And he always has this way of setting films in New York City about African immigrants, but yet never showing New York City at all. Mm-hmm. Which, which to me is pretty interesting, considering the fact that most New York films, New York plays right. a huge role. It's like a character in itself. Yeah. But here, he like he shows none of New York City. You barely ever see it. It's all shot through extreme close up because you know it's it's a character study. It's dealing with these characters and the emotional struggles that they have to go through. And it's just the way that it's shot and the way that it plays out is absolutely fantastic. It's a very um, understated, understated, uh, powerful film that I quite enjoyed. A lot better than Restless City. Restless City was just, you know, sort of the tried and true story that we've seen numerous times before with just great cinematography told from a different perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. This one's a little bit different where it's actually a newlywed Nigerian couple, which you found out you find out early on in the film that apparently the only way to succeed as people is to have children. So you have that tons of pressure already on you. And then of course they have all the trouble in the world conceiving. They just they can't do it. It's not that they don't try, it's just there's a problem with one of them and they can't. And then they go through they go to these desperate measures to try and have children and it's just the way that these decisions affect everyone so i would definitely recommend mother of george that's playing in select cities now yes and again i highly recommend that one and then i saw behind the candle opera mm-hmm. finally got around to liberace and um i was a little upset by this i for me i thought it was just like a straight biopic of liberace i didn't realize that it's more about his relationship with Scott Thorson, who's played yeah. by Matt Damon. And it's really just their relationship and that's all. And there's a part of me that thinks that story shouldn't be told at all. You know, that's, that's, those are private moments between two people and Liberace never talked about it. So obviously he never wanted it to be discussed. Well, and Scott, Scott Thorson wants money. So he comes out with a book and then for some reason it's made into a movie. Well, I think the big thing about Liberace not wanting to talk about is that he was closeted. I know, but you know, for Thorson to dig up no, I about, get it. I get what you know, saying. like his obsession with pornography and going to, you know, I don't know what those are called. The, the like adult superstores with the peep shows <laughs> and all that stuff. Adult superstores. <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever they are <laughs> with their peep show booths or whatever. Like I, that's something that shouldn't, you know, he he wanted to keep that private, obviously. And it's just, it, to me, I I see Scott Thorson as a guy just riding off the coattails of Liberace. Just just milking it for as much as he can. Yeah. And that bothers me. But the film existed, and I ended up watching it, so I'm much to blame as anyone. The performances are fantastic. Michael Douglas is awesome as Liberace. Matt Damon's great as Scott Thorson, especially when he doesn't understand things and just the look on his face. (laughs) And did you notice that, like, after he had the plastic surgery done, which was a very bizarre sequence where, you know, Liberace wanted to make make him look more like Liberace, (laughs) that he looked like Val Kilmer the rest of the film? Yeah, he does. Like, I honestly thought that that was Val Kilmer the rest of the film. Um, Rob Lowe does a great job as I love Rob Lowe in this movie as a Chris Traeger plastic surgeon <laughs> Yeah, because he pretty much does the Parks and Rec character I just kept waiting for him to say literally or call them by their full names like Scott Thorson 
Scott but <laughs> that that didn't happen. So I was sort of let down. Um, Dan Aykroyd's hair is fantastic. Um, Scott Bakula's mustache is also equally fantastic. Um, Michael Douglas's sex noises were the funniest oh, thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> just every time that that happened, I just lost it. Uh, the cinematography is, you know, serviceable for most of the film, but it really shined when like Thorson had his breakdown mm-hmm. and is, you know, when the paranoia, paranoia started creeping in and he just lost it. Just the way that he filmed all of that was fantastic with the, you know, the out of focus and the, the skewed angles and just, it was fantastic. I loved those portions. Everything else was just sort of, you know, slightly above average. I would say the only thing that bothers me is what happened to the poodle. Did the poodle get better? I think he did, did say poodle... he did say did that he? it was that it was getting better. I don't, I don't remember that. And the only other film I saw was uh, Silent Souls, which is a Russian film about I don't know. I have no idea how to pronounce this. Uh, Merjan, like the Merjan tribe in Russia. I guess it's like a, a culture of people that are slowly dying out. Hmm. Uh, so it's this very um, light narrative where there's a, a man that owns a paper mill and his young wife dies. So he gets a guy that works there. They're sort of friends at the company. And these two go on this journey to cremate his dead wife. And they have to... And it sort of shows like their cultural, um, the w- the way they go about doing these things, and it sort of you know gives you some insight into this culture, where they dress the bodies themselves, they load the body into a car, they go to where his honeymoon took place, buy an immense amount of wood, set up this like platform, put her on top of it, and then you know cremate the body themselves, just these two guys, and then they take the ashes and they dump them in the water. Because that's, I guess, apparently the, that's what you do in their culture, is that you have to commit their ashes to the water. Because the water plays a significant role in their culture. To the tune that, like, to die of drowning is apparently, like, the greatest thing in the world to them. Hmm. Like, it means everything. Hmm. So if they find a, a drowned body, they pull them out, tie a weight to them, and then put them back in the water. It's interesting. Yeah. And is and that's sort of how it was. It was a very interesting movie because you're getting all these insights into a culture that I absolutely had nothing, I knew nothing about. And a lot of it is like it's based off of a uh, a novel, so it's all given to you in sort of this narration from the writer's point of view, like as the, as the actions play out. Um, but as a film, it wasn't that great. Like there's not a lot going on here. The cinematography is okay. The performances are okay. Like, everything's just average, really. But the strength of it is just the insight into a culture that I knew nothing about. So it's like a light recommend. Like, if you want to learn about a culture that you've never heard of before, check it out. If you're not interested in that at all, you can easily bypass it. There you go. So Silent Souls. Silent Souls, which is actually, it's, uh, it's on Netflix, Play Instant. Which is where I watched it. Cool. All right. Uh, That's all you got? That's all I got. 
let's talk about Prisoners. This is directed by Dennis Villanova. Stars Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Viola Davis, uh, Maria Bello, Terrence Howard, Melissa Leo, Paul Dano. I do have a synopsis here. When Keller Dover's daughter and her friend go missing, he takes matters into his own hands as the police pursue multiple leads and pressure mounts. Just, But just how far will this desperate father go to protect his family? Now, you have a review up on the site for this, so I think mm-hmm. that I'll kick it off. I was... I don't want to say I was surprised by this movie, but I, I thought that it was going to be pretty good to begin with, so... I actually like this quite a bit. We were talking off the air a little bit about it, and I was saying that I think that this is probably one of the best mysteries I've seen since Seven, probably. Maybe maybe there's a couple other ones in there. Um, Memories of Murder, I think, came out after Seven, and that's definitely up there as far as mysteries go. But mm-hmm. I I was really impressed with this movie. I thought that the performances were great, the overall look of the film was nice i I wasn't like blown away by the cinematography however i i I thought that there were a lot of really great um shots where they do like the slow kind of pan in Mm -hmm. you know like into a room or whatever behind a person i thought that that all that looked great uh just overall the the story kept me guessing like i had no idea where it was gonna go or what turn it was going to take. And if you think about it, it, it is kind of like, it's kind of like several stories put into one, you know, like there's, there's the kidnapping that they're trying to, to solve. And then there's Hugh Jackman, who is like trying to deal with it on, in his own way. And then there's the whole, like after they kidnap Paul Dano and there's just all these things happening that are, that are sort of converging. And overall I was really impressed by it. And, Liked it quite a bit, as you should. Yeah, this is like its first foray into like a like a mainstream production, like a Hollywood type production. And I was a little bit worried. I was skeptical going in. Oh, because yeah, I do, you know, I do usually, want to mention real quick. Sorry that uh, I did have issues with it. I was just saying yeah, those. Yeah, I'm just saying like I, I was very apprehensive going in because I'm already a fan of Villanueva and. A lot of times when these foreign directors come in and do, you know, a mainstream Hollywood like studio backed production, most times it doesn't play out too well, which, you know, we'll get into a little bit with some of the plot developments and everything that happened that I'm sure that we both have the same issues with. But there was definitely enough of his style there that made me enjoy it. Like I knew that he directed this and a lot of times they're sort of their style gets masked because of the studio's input into the film. And just, I, I thought of it as, I see him as like the new Fincher to go off of the, the seven. Yeah. The seven thing that you said earlier, he feels like a new Fincher for me. And if he continues to work with Johan Johansson, the Icelandic, you know, electronica composer, it, I, I feel like that there's a marriage there of Villanueva and Johansson that's the same as the newfound marriage between Fincher and Trent Reznor. Like, just the, they work so well together. Just to add the, all these intense scenes, which were perfectly accentuated by the music at the time. And then the other thing that sort of shocked me is 
the thing that struck out to me was the use of lighting and shadows. Like the entire scene where they're the candlelight vigil chase scene mm-hmm. with the motion detector yeah. spotlights, the floodlights and in, in the backyards and everything. That was fantastic. The use of the flashlights when he was at, you know, like the priest's house and when he was down in the the crawl space or whatever you want to call that. And the Paul Dano with looking through the the hole when they would just you would just see his eye. Yeah, when you just like see that. his eye, the his there's there's so many scenes where the, the lighting is used absolutely perfectly. And I thought I was actually talking about it with my wife on the drive home. It's like, oh my god, I loved it. I loved the use of lighting, everything. So I got home, looked it up, and lo and behold, who do I find out to be the cinematographer? Roger Deakins, <laughs> who is just amazing with light. For whatever reason, this guy just nails it constantly with light and shadows. And I shouldn't be surprised at all that he's the one that did the cinematography. So as long as he can keep getting Roger Deakins to help him out with the with the filming, uh, he's definitely going to have quite a career on his hands. And like you said, the the performances were, I thought were fantastic. Cause some of them I thought were a little over the top. Like Hugh Jackman's performance, I couldn't stand. Like it just drove me crazy. It's just it seemed excessive. Well, and I mean, uber macho. Yeah, and I know that, what they're going for. Yeah, you know, that's the character he plays. I mean, even from from the opening scene of the film, they set it <laughs> up as he's he's like you know a, a prepper. He's one of these. He he played the type of guy that he was in, in yeah. that movie. It's just it. I thought that in a couple of intense scenes, it was just a little over the top when he would just keep screaming the same thing over and over again. And the other thing that I would mention is, even though Maria Bella does a fantastic job as the character that she plays, you know, the emotionally just completely damaged. Yeah, just completely fractured wholly as a person and emotionally, mentally. It's, It's becoming to the point where she's playing this character all the time. Like, as soon as I see Maria Bello appear on the screen, I know exactly what her character is going to be. She's like Ray Liotta. (laughs) She's the same. And it's just, and she does a fantastic job of it. And I can see why she's cast in that role. But I know you have bills to pay, but just say no sometimes. Well, I think that uh, all the performances were pretty pretty top-notch in this. Even... I I didn't mind Hugh Jackman's performance at all. I thought that he did a really good job. But I was completely surprised by Jake Gyllenhaal. He's he's someone that I don't really like, but he he really sold me in this movie. Yeah, I thought he was great. I thought Paul Dano was great, even though he didn't have a lot of dialogue. I thought that his yeah, but man, his he, mannerisms and, he nailed that character. Yeah, like he it was really kind of a transformative role, I think, for him because he just played this. I, and I have a feeling that there's a, a number of people that were writing scripts that involved like a, a pedophile in in their script. And after watching this, they just like light switch went off on their head and they're like, Paul Dano must play my pedophile. <laughs> He's perfect for the role. And I just, I have, I just have this sense of him just like tomorrow, just like 35 scripts coming in the mail now, for him to be a pedophile. Now I think out of all the, the actors in this film i would say that melissa leo is historically the most kind of inconsistent uh throughout her career so what what do you think of what do you think of melissa leo's performance i thought it was quite good i mean she's sort of playing a character that 
it's like right in her wheelhouse. Yep. Which is this sort of backwoodsy, creepy, a little bit unhinged woman um, that she sort of, you know, really that's what made her career. It's funny because I think the last thing I saw her in was that Oblivion movie, and she was not good in that at all. And then I see her in this, and she's great. So it's like, yeah, it really depends on the role for her. I th- I think it does. It seems like if if she has a role where she has to, you know, demonstrate some range, a lot of times she comes across as like she's out of her depth. But like I said, this this role was just firmly in her wheelhouse that she just nails it. Yeah. But like you said, there's a number of films where the, she tries to break out of that character and it, it doesn't work too well. I guess we can talk sort of about just the the plot in general as far as the mystery goes. Like, did you were you pleased with how it it played out. I don't want to give anything away at all. So I know we're gonna, we're this gonna, is it's a very difficult skirt around everything. Yeah, it's a very difficult film to talk about because there's so much going on here that really to go outside of there's two little girls missing is gets into spoiler territory. Yeah, like I, I feel as though we've we've talked too much just telling you about Paul Dano. Well, they they I think they do show that in the trailer. I know I know I know they do show that in the trailer, but they. It's really one of those films that you should go into not knowing anything, really. Just don't read anything. Just go in, open mind, no expectations, and just be just be sort of shocked about what transpires, really. Because it goes into some crazy territory. Were you, were you buying it? I mean, were you buying, like, the connections and how it played out? No, not really. <laughs> Not to an extent. I mean, some of the connections were so far fetched. I hate that the you know the Hollywood studio <sighs> plot development where you know things just sort of pop up, just land in your lap, yeah, man. Yeah. Just oh, it comes together for you. I just I hate that shit. But I mean, you got to sort of excuse it because if they were to show like a realistic uh, police investigation, the movie yeah. would be like nine It'd hours long. It'd be extremely long and extremely boring. It'd be I, it would be Jake Gyllenhaal sitting in front of a computer for eight hours. I know, <laughs> just it would be it would be awful. But I do have to say that I was I was pleasantly surprised that they stuck with Phil and Nueva's, um sort of pacing that he uses in most of his films. They didn't. It's yeah. It's you very, know try and yes. run through this as quickly as possible. It's very deliberately Hollywood. paced. Yeah. Yeah. It's and I just I had this overall sense that everyone around me because I saw it in. You know, small town, Pennsylvania, with a lot of, you know, older people, a really older audience, which was I was quite surprised by. And I could just, I could feel them becoming just irritated by the pacing. I could just feel it. Yeah, the my screening had a lot of older people too, but I didn't, and, and at one point I thought, because I knew, I knew the runtime before I went into it, so I knew that it was going to be a longer movie. And at one point, I don't know where we were in the movie, but I did think, like, I can feel the people starting to get antsy here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was it was perfectly paced. Yeah. That, yes. I would definitely agree with you there. I just, it, it really bothered me. And I know I'm, that I'm nitpicking, but for all these people to reside in the same area, <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. 
Um, I also want to know why so many of these films take place in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm starting to get that sense. Well, why not? I think <laughs> if, if you're going to do a story like that, Pennsylvania is a perfect place to have that yeah. story. But th- that was sad. the interesting thing. Like it, it really felt like Pennsylvania to me. Like I don't know where they shot it. If it was, they actually shot it in Georgia. They always shoot stuff in Georgia. So it's but it, it's like it's like the well it's the Pennsylvania regions of Pennsylvania. But it didn't. I mean, it just it felt like Pennsylvania to me. I it mean, did. Maybe, it did. Maybe, it did feel like Pennsylvania, especially when he went to the wine and spirits store. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like just like how it was like overcast and just yeah. just to me like the way that the trees looked and stuff and the windy roads and the hills mm-hmm. and stuff. Like the inspection stickers on the cars. Oh yeah, yeah, they nailed that. <laughs> I mean, it just—it felt like Pennsylvania it was like depressing and dreary, and <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like a slightly better Ohio. Sorry, Ohio. <laughs> but the other thing that bothered me is the this, which always happens in studio films, the one-man police force, which is Jake Gyllenhaal. He just does everything by himself. Yeah. Uh, Which just got to me. It's like, oh my God, call for backup. Call for a search team. Yeah, he doesn't he never this calls is ridiculous. for backup or anything. He does everything himself, which irritates me. There is one scene, I think, when he calls he calls something in, like, immediately. But I can't remember. It might have been when he found the... I don't know. Might have been. See, spoiler alert. I, well, yeah, I, was Get just, out. I thought about that. But Get out. You, you don't know what... It, but I mean, it's just one of those, like, if you really think about it, you really dig into it. The police investigation that goes on in this film is just really haphazard. <laughs> well, they and just, it's just terrible. Downright terrible, really. There's, yeah, there's a lot of like kind of hunches and a lot of coincidence happening in this movie. And there's a, you know, they interject this other crime that happens. And I'm trying to really skirt around this, but like they don't investigate that crime at all. They do see a connection really at all. And then until towards the end, which it's like, how do you not see a connection right away? Well, they did. They summed, they summed that up in like one sentence. There's a scene where he's talking to the chief and he's like, Hey, did you, you know, look into this? Did you get any hits on this? Referring to the other case. And he was like, no. (laughs) And And I just, I had a feeling, (laughs) I just wanted to hear the police chief be like, Oh, I only have you. So, you're the only one. <laughs> you're the only police officer we have. And just some of the other dialogue that just really came across as like sappy studio style is when, you know, when Maria Bell is talking to him, for whatever reason, it just has to inject this. Oh, the chief told me that you've, that you're undefeated and solved every case that you've ever been assigned to. It's just like that just seemed excessive. There's no need for that. Yeah, I, I remember that line. Um, the, and then it, and the 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 religious aspect of this movie I thought was handled very heavy handedly. That drew me out a little bit. The, the yeah, like the praying and stuff. I, yeah, it didn't really feel necessary to me at all. No, like I didn't. No. I just didn't really understand why that was there. It's just it seems sort of tacked on, just like they they threw it on top just to give it a little more emotional oomph. I don't know. Then again, with a lot of those. It might just be more believable characters, you know, because a lot of those characters are like, and a lot of those people are super religious, and it might it might have just been used to support the character. And with the other thing is, 
Um, now I saw Incendies, and now Incendies has this pretty emotional <clears throat> opening to it, where there's you know child soldiers, and there's a child soldier just staring into the camera, just breaking the fourth wall, while Radiohead's "You and Whose Army" plays over top of it. So going into Prisoners, I was like, if Villain somehow interjects Radiohead into this, I'm just I'm going to be sort of irritated. And he did it throughout the entire film. He didn't do it. I was so happy until the end. When there's like a CSI team digging holes on someone's, you know, someone's compound, and they're listening to Radiohead for some reason on their boombox. Yeah. Like, who's going to be out at night, like midnight, digging holes, listening to Radiohead? Are you serious? Well, they pack it in. If that's any consolation, they stop. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's so damn depressing because they're listening to Radiohead at the time. Hey, nothing quite like. <laughs> Trying to dig up dead bodies after midnight, listening to some Radiohead. <laughs> it just that seemed a bit emotionally excessive. I I did have an I had an issue with the ending, and I'm I'm not gonna say anything at all. I just I had an issue with it. I'll talk I'll talk about it off the air. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of the ending at all, especially the way that it transpired. The way that it played out. I feel like they end it. if they cut it, if they ended it like maybe 15 or 30 seconds before they actually did it, I think it would have been a lot more effective. Yeah, I think it would have been too. But again, it's a slight nitpick. And it, I feel as though that that's a, like a studio injection. It's not. I, I think it's you definitely know, you a studio know, injection. The the object that plays yes, a part into this is just really I had a big, bothers me. Yeah, I had a problem with that. Big problem with that. That was... Uh... And there's a, there's a lot of other things that I really wish that we could talk about, but I really don't want to spoil it. Like, we could we get really into in-depth here. Well, if you want to go into a spoiler section, we can. Well, yeah, I would, but I have to take my card to get inspected. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right. Tie that, in, tie that into the movie Pennsylvania, baby. All right, well... Uh... I think we both gave Prisoners an 8 out of 10. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So check that out. It's playing in theaters now. Wide release. So Prisoners. Yeah, definitely check that out. All right. Let's go ahead and talk about predictions. Last week we said, you said for Enough Said, 64 for Enough Said. I said 68, actual 94. Are you serious? I'm. Yeah. I, I don't wow. I don't want to speculate or, or sound like a, a dick, but I wonder if that score has anything to do with James Gandolfini's passing. Mm, maybe. I haven't seen it, so it, it didn't look bad. Uh, Prisoners, you said 70, I said 76, actual 79. And Battle of the Year, you said 46, I said 32, actual 6. <laughs> oh, I, uh, amazing. I See, I can't. I can't judge those films. Well, you know they're going to be bad. I mean, I know that they're going to be bad, but I don't know if people are going to review them for the genre right, that they yeah. reside in. And, I get you it. Know, all that. God, I don't know anything about dance movies. Maybe you should read up on should, it. Should that be my... That's the genre I'm going to tackle next year. <laughs> Fucking dance movies. Good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> and next week we have Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. Now, I was a big fan big fan of the first one this is one of these like that i went to see with no expectations at all like i didn't think it looked very good but i ended up loving it 
I've seen it a couple times since then too. So I've never seen it. It's just so funny and just it's a delight. Ooh. But the the sequel it has the whole cast in it returning, but it's a different writer, different director. So I I don't know. I mean, it looks the trailers don't make it seem to be quite as funny as the first one, but I think mm. it'll still be generally well received. So I'm gonna say like seventy. Mm. I'm gonna say like seventy-four. And then we also have Rush, Ron Howard's Rush. What are you thinking on this bad boy? Rush. I'm gonna go like a, a eighty. I'm gonna say seventy-six. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll stick. No, it's locked in. I'll, it's locked I'll in. stick with that. Whatever. We do have a review for Rush up on the site now because it is playing in L.A. Uh, Don John. Don John, another film I'm sick and tired of hearing about. I still want to see it. I think it looks really funny. I've heard good I know. Really I good still, things. I, I want to see it still. There's, I slightly still want to see it. It's just one of those films that it been, it's been talked about to death for so long. Yeah, because I think, when did that come out? Like Sundance? I think it might have came yeah. I think it was That's, Sundance. That's one of the problems with this whole overcoverage of festivals and stuff. Is you start talking about these films so early. And just constantly, constantly, constantly. Oh, yeah. sort of sick and tired of them until they finally come out. What are you thinking on, uh, did I say, I, I think 82 for Don Joe? 82? I'm going to say like 77. All right. Also in limited release, we have After Tiller, which is the abortion documentary. Sounds like a romp. Yes, definitely. Late-term abortion documentary. Um, Metallica, Through the Never. But, dumbest title I've ever heard in my life. But you're going to go see that one? No, that's never happening. Not going to go see Through the Never? No. Uh, it's, it's directed by uh, that, uh, what's his name? Nimrod Antle. Cool. Pretty visual director. Sure. What uh, We Are What <laughs> We Are, what we are, which is a re- remake of a French horror movie, maybe? Spanish horror movie? Some sort of Spanish. It looks really interesting, though. <clears throat> I'm, so I'm, the the original was actually pretty good. Did you see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want I want I want to see that. So, and I think that the is it the same director that's doing the remake as well? No, it's a different director, and it's actually a Mexican horror film. Mexican, yeah. Uh, but I think it looks pretty interesting. As I lay dying, uh, that's the what is that? It's fucking James Franco doing. Oh, that's right, Faulkner. <laughs> that's right, the Fa- the Faulkner movie. Can I just say that Faulkner, Faulkner, is literary ambient. That's what it is. So I can't imagine what a fucking film helmed by James Franco is going to produce. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, it, I think right now it has like a forty something on Rotten Tomatoes. That sounds awful. Uh, we have On the Job, which uh, I'm pretty excited to check this one out. Well, we will be covering this next week. This is, a, I think it's a, from the Philippines, and it tells the true story about, uh, I think it's like mobsters that get prisoners out of jail to perform hits and then put them back in jail. So it's, <laughs> like, they're the, it's like the perfect alibi because they just use prisoners to carry out these hits. Wow. Yeah, so that... That looks really interesting. We have The Secret Lives of Dorks, which we'll also be covering. Spoiler alert on that. Todd did not like it at all. What? No. 
Muscle Muscle Shoals, which I I don't really have any interest in. This is another music documentary. Yeah. Dark Touch, no. The Network. Pass. Pass. The Network is the uh, it's a documentary about was it a TV station in yeah the in, first uh, independent Afghanistan yeah yeah yeah. Uh, but I think we will have some coverage on that as well. And video on demand releases, just three that I wanted to highlight. Dark Touch, Man of Tai Chi, which is the Keanu Reeves directorial debut. And, Exciting. And Muscle Shoals. Oh, fantastic. Strong. The only reason I want to see Man of Tai Chi is because the dude from the raid's in it. So I'm pretty excited for that. Okay. I, I, I'm not excited. I shouldn't say that <laughs> I'm pretty excited because I'm not. <laughs> I think that Manitachi looks better than that uh, 47 Ronin movie, but is that what it, it's called 47 Ronin, right? Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're correct. DVD and Blu-ray releases, we have Fill the Void, which we have a review for that. Up, I heard it was quite good. I don't know what Ernie gave it. I Spit on Your Grave too. Just can't seem to... I feel like we talk about that movie every week. From now on, yes. we're going to talk about I Spit on Your Grave 2 every single week on the show. That's right. I uh, never stop. Iron Man 3, Kings of Summer, finally coming out. Fantastic. I'm very excited. Redemption, which is that Jason Statham movie that was pretty bad. Jason Statham 24. <laughs> uh, Room 237 and VHS 2. Also, I'm excited for uh, Something in the Air is finally being released. What is that one? The Olivier Assayas film. Okay. Didn't you... I I feel as though you saw that at a festival. Or you were planning on seeing it and didn't make it. Something something like that. Could be. VHS 2 on VHS. Is it coming out on VHS? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the worst movies of the year. I love it. On VHS. I love it when they do that. I disagree, yeah. but... I we'll have an entire podcast argument. I'm ready to throw down on that shit pile. Any other any Criterion's? We have one box set coming from Criterion. Three films. Uh, the collaborations between director Roberto Rossellini and the actress Ingrid Bergman, who worked together during the 50s on three films: Stromboli, Europe. 51 in Journey to Italy. They are finally being released on Blu-ray, no less. Very cool. So if, so if you like your uh, Italian neorealism, dive right in, which I know is, like, that's your wheelhouse, Adam. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> some some call me an expert on Italian neorealism. <laughs> uh, I think all call you an expert. Everyone. Yeah. All right, well, I think that that wraps it up. For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. Send us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name is Adam. And I am Kevin. And we will see you on Thursday for Ryan Watches a Movie. Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve.